start a new series today entitled Dive Deep. That went by real quick. Dive Deep. And uh, so we're going to look at going beyond the shallow. It's going to be hard for you to see the words dive deep, but they're in there. And uh, if you notice the diver going deep, we're going to go beyond the shallow. In the, a little series of four studies on Sunday morning, we're going to go beyond the shallow and we're going to move into the depths of the, the relationship that we have with Jesus and the graces that he has for those of us who are in Christ. And I think that most of us settle for the shallow. We naturally have a tendency to do that because the deep brings challenges. Uh, we, we think of going into the deep waters as something dangerous and, and so we have a tendency to sort of gravitate toward the shallow, toward that which is safe, because we, we, we have a hold of it, we, we can put our feet on firm ground, and we can sort of hold on to what we possess. But God, through Christ today, is calling us by his grace to move beyond the shallow and into the depths of his grace and his relationship with us. So we're going to look at that together for the next four Sunday mornings. So if you like where you are, just miss the next couple of four Sundays and uh, you'll be fine. That was not intended to be real though. But anyway, let's stand together and let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3 together. As we stand together, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3 together. Follow along if you would on the verses on the screen. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is for us to be, uh, be in this place this morning. I know there's a lot of us who would have been here were not for the increment weather and for physical things. And I know we've got a lot of our people on vacation today trying to get that last time with their family before they leave. I'm kind of excited that on their vacation it rained. Maybe they won't have such a good time. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's not serious, Lord. But uh, uh, we are here today uh, in this place gathered as one body under one lordship and in one spirit. To acknowledge your sovereignty over our lives and to look to you for the divine guidance that we need. So God, speak through your word today in ways that are very clear, unmistakable, with an understanding that gives us clear directives from your spirit through your word today. Thank you for being present in this place. And I pray that you continue to be present as we open your word and study it. We ask that you bless it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, let me ask you a question. If someone were 50 years old or 70 years old and they were still in diapers, would you say that was normal? If they were still sucking their tongue, thumb or, or sucking a pacifier, would you say that was normal? Why not? Because naturally, we, when we are birthed into this world, we are intended to mature physically and we are intended to grow, right? It's a natural process. And if that natural process does not continue at the age of four or five, if they're not at least, you know, showing some signs of growing physically, we would more than likely take them to the doctor and say, Doc, what's going on with my child? Unfortunately, I'm convinced that there are many today who are in the church who have not grown spiritually. And there are many who have been in the church for decades who are still 
baby who are still infants in their faith. Now, they have a lot of head knowledge. They've sat through a lot of conferences. They've been through a lot of courses. They've sat in life groups. They, they can quote you scriptures. They know the Bible, and they've been through all of that. But literally, it has not made an impact in that it has not developed them, nor has it grown them from the shallowness of Christianity into the depths of the graces of God. You see, longevity does not within itself precipitate, nor will it cause someone to spiritually grow. You can sit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in life group or in Bible study or in a worship service and conferences and seminars and watch it on television and still stay stagnant and still settle in the shallowness of the graces of God. That was true, I think, to the church that God is addressing through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and in the second letter to the Corinthians. It's unnatural for believers not to grow as much as it is unnatural for human beings not to develop and to mature physically. Now, I was around both sets of grandchildren in the last week and a half. I had a privilege of of, of the church allowing me to take a couple of days, two or three days of vacation. And then we went to the Cove, uh, the Billy Graham's uh, retreat center, conference center for four days. And I had a personal retreat time, just me and the Lord and, and, and some with Patty. And Patty and I separated and I was able to walk through the beautiful forest of, of North Carolina up there in that beautiful area up in there and got rained on and saw deer about as close between here and me and you, Brad, and a little fawn and saw an owl hunting. And, and, and God and I just had a great time walking in the woods together. Yes, it was hard to find God in the mountains of North Carolina, but I did find him there. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, and then after that, we went to a two-day conference uh, in uh, the Dallas area at Preston World Baptist Church. It's called Preston Wood, but it's so big it's called Preston World. And uh, so we were there for two days in a sin conference and saw a lot of people from Wichita there. And then I spent a day and a half at the conclusion of that at my eldest son with his four children. So I was around two toddlers. They were both right around one, Grayson and Cannon. Grayson Edward and Cannon Knox. They're about one. They're close to the same age. And uh, so I, I, I was observing these children as I was thinking about some of the things that I've been walking with God with and, and considering with God in the hills, in the mountains, and, and as I began to, to prepare for this study. I didn't really think I would be delivering this today. I changed my mind on Saturday morning. And so here we have this study today. But I was watching these children, and I've learned something about toddlers. First of all, toddlers are very demanding, aren't they? They're very demanding. I mean, if they're wet, they want to be changed. If they're hungry, they want to be fed. If they're not happy, you are to make them happy. And if you don't make them happy, you will hear about it until they become happy. They're demanding. And uh, they, will, they will make you believe that the universe revolves around them. Ask anyone with toddlers, and they will tell you that a toddler, even though they're cute and they're not even one, they can control your life. They will dictate your schedule. They will manipulate your mind and your emotions and your marriage and your family. They're demanding, right? Right. Not only are they demanding, but they are destructive. You have to baby-proof your home. You grandparents and great-grandparents know what I'm talking about. When the grandkids come over, you put stuff up. Why? They'll tear it up. 
They'll throw what shouldn't be thrown. They'll pull apart what shouldn't be pulled apart. And, and, and not only that, but I learned that uh, they will cause you to build things just so they can take them down. I was with Grayson, you know, for a couple of days and uh, on the floor mostly with him because he's, he's just kind of barely learning how to walk, you know. They're walking like that, you know, and they're, they're trying to fall. And Anyway, we had blo- he had some blocks, so I would stack the blocks up, and he would knock them down. And then he'd, he'd point. He doesn't talk yet. He's, he's a quiet male. Isn't that a blessing, ladies? He, he'd point, and he'd want me to build it up again. He'd knock it down. They're destructive. They don't build anything. They just tear things down. Not only are they destructive, but they're defenseless. You don't let a one-year-old in a room very long until you better go check on them because if you don't hear any sound at all, more than likely they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing to themselves or to other people. And they are incredibly defenseless. They are helpless beings. You, you make sure that when you cross the street, you're holding their hand. or I mean, you do everything to protect them and to shelter them and to keep them safe and to make sure that they're not in harm's way because they just can't defend themselves. And lastly, and not, not least, it, it's one of the aspects that we don't like to think about, they're depraved. They are. That little baby you're holding in your hand right now, as cute as she is, she's depraved. She was born with an endemic nature. A nature called the flesh. It's also called the self. It's one that all of us in this room were born with. And, and we, we inherit it because of the sin of Adam. We are born with this Adamic, sinful, fleshly, carnal nature that we have that is constantly at war within us. And when we're children, we come into the world with that, depra- that depravity. And, and we try as parents as best we can to contain it, to control it, to discipline them. But no matter how much discipline, we can, we can manage and manipulate them. But they're still carnal until they come to faith in Christ And they receive the new spirit of Christ to reside in their hearts. And then the spirit of God then empowers them and enables them then to resist the flesh. So that as they resist the flesh, the spirit increases and they can have then more control over the flesh. You think about little children in our family. They're no different than children in the church. I'm not talking about one-year-olds. I'm talking about spiritual babies. Spiritual babies are very demanding. They believe that the church and the world revolves around them. And they are going to fuss and fight until they get their way. And by golly, if I don't get my way, I'll go somewhere else where they'll give me my way. And we have a church culture today that is constantly feeding on that, on that environment and that self-centeredness and that fleshly attitude of most Christians who are baby and who act more carnally than spiritual. And they feed that carnality and they feed the flesh. Come to us, we'll give you what you want. The only problem is you can't stop. Because when they get what they want, they're like babies, they want more. And they want more. And they want more. And they want more. They're demanding. Uh, Spiritual infants are not only demanding, but they're very destructive. They're not serving. They're not building anything up. They're only tearing everything down. And all they do is criticize and complain and tear down and knock down. They're not building anything or anyone up, not even themselves. They are very depressed. They are they have no motor control over their mouths or their minds or their actions. And, and a church filled with immature believers is nothing but destructive. Not only are they demanding and destructive, they are defenseless. Like a newborn baby, they are defenseless. The enemy has a field day in their lives. They have no defense because they are giving in to the flesh. They're acting out carnally in so many ways in their lives that they are a victim now to an enemy that they can no longer resist. 
The flesh is in control, and the Spirit of Christ has no reign over their lives. They're also very depraved. And it is possible for a saved, born-again child of God to be so of the flesh and so carnal that the image of Christ is not seen at all. There is no aspect, no fruit of the Spirit, no graces of the Spirit, no aspect about the new life. They don't know right from wrong, and as a result of that, they just don't know how to act. And even though they may think they know how to act, they continue to act and to choose the wrong way to act. Because why? They're living in the flesh. They know what the Bible says, but it doesn't matter because it's all about me, and it's all what I want. The church that Paul is addressing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the church at Corinth, is filled with baby Christians. It's filled with them. And the whole first and the whole second book of Corinth is designed to to challenge them to mature and to push beyond the surface and the self and the carnal life and go into the depths. Babies live carnally because that's how babies live. But at some point, we should grow spiritually and we should mature to the point where we're no longer infants in our faith and the world doesn't revolve around us and we're not acting out carnally and fleshly as baby Christians. That's got to happen at some point. Not only in our individual lives, but in the life of the church. And so Paul is concerned about it. And he writes about that concern. Let's look at the text in verses 1, 2, and the first sentence in verse 3. Notice what it says. Notice his concern. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. First of all, he describes his relationship with these beautiful people that he's addressing. He addresses them, first of all, he says, therefore, I. He's saying, I, Paul, your spiritual father. It was Paul who took the gospel to the Corinthians. It was Paul who proclaimed the gospel. It was Paul that they heard under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were convicted of their need. They trusted Christ, committed to follow him, and off they went to follow Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And it was Paul who spent 18 months trying to disciple them. And then he left Apollos to disciple them, to be the shepherd and the pastor over the flock. So for 18 months, he's saying, hey, guys, I was your spiritual father. I I brought you the gospel. You trusted in Christ, and then I discipled you in the faith. I gave you milk for babies. Me, Paul. Not only am I your spiritual father, but I also want to remind you of a spiritual fellowship that we belong to. He said, you brothers. You see, he calls them brothers. Why? It's a term of endearment. It's a a term and a way in which he's saying, guys, I love you. Not only do I love you, but I'm with you. I, too, like you, struggle in the flesh. Was it not Paul in the book of Romans where he said, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the very things that I I, I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Woe is me. I'm I'm, I'm miserable Why the flesh is battling with the spirit and there's a struggle going on and is reminding them, me, too, I'm of the fellowship. I'm with you. I struggle with the flesh. I struggle with my carnality, and yet I don't live like like you, but I can relate to you and I understand your battle and your struggle because I'm your brother and I have the same concerns. So he talks about his relationship. He talks then about his restraint, though. 
Notice he says in that text, he says, hey, guy, he said, I would like to address you as spiritual people. In other words, there are some things that the Holy Spirit has given to me that are intended to be given to you by God. There's some blessings, there's some insight, there's some progress, there's some development that God intends for you, but I am restrained from giving it. Why? Because you are not able to receive it because you're of the flesh. I'm convinced there are many things that God wants to do for us individually and corporately, but he can't do for us because we're not yet ready to receive it. You see, he's not going to give you things that you're not ready to receive. Because when he gives things that you're not ready to receive, and you're acting and living in the flesh, you're acting and living carnally, you're just going to continue to live carnally. You're going to continue to live in the flesh. And he does, that's not how God operates. God doesn't bless disobedience. And so he says, I'm restrained, not because of, of any inability on my part to deliver the goods, but because here you are unable to receive it. Why? Because you are people of the flesh. That's the reason why they're not able to receive what God wants to bless them with is because they, they, they are, are guilty of lust of the flesh. They have a craving and a lust for the flesh that's greater from their desire to live in the spirit. They are craving these things of the flesh. They are living worldly. Now they somehow, under some understanding of their own, think that they're not living this way. It's for this reason that he brings this concern to them. He says, hey guys, you think you're living spiritually? But you're really living carnally. You're living under the lust of the flesh. And that lust of the flesh, the end result is that it causes you and prevents you from growing spiritually. Lust of the flesh, losing the control of the spirit. That's, that's the carnal life and the spiritual life like this. He's saying, hey, the flesh is taking over. And when the flesh takes over, the spirit diminishes. But as the spirit increases, the flesh diminishes. That's how the Christian life works. That's how the battle is fought, lost and won. For the more I am obedient to the word of God and I yield to the leading and the leadership of the spirit, the less of the flesh there is. The flesh nearly, never ever completely goes away. That's why there's a constant struggle and a battle. But, but as I yield to the leadership of the word and the yielding of the, of the prodding of the spirit of God, the flesh goes less and less and less. But this church was giving more into the flesh and the spirit was diminishing. They were not living under the control of the, of the spirit. They were living under the control of the flesh. That's what the carnal life, the flesh life is all about. And yet if you read on in the book of, of Acts, you learn that they thought they were incredibly spiritual. Why? They had these awesome spiritual gifts and they could preach and they could sing. And they, they had platforms. They prided themselves of being spiritual when in reality... Paul says, you're carnal, you're fleshly, you're worldly. Why? Well, in the past, you see, he says to them, I used to give you milk. When you were newborn babies, I gave you milk. But I came to give you solid food, but you're not ready to receive it. I still have to give you milk. Why? Because they were still spiritual infants. You don't give a baby certain foods. I learned that some parents have certain foods that they want their kid to have and not to have because there are certain foods that cause reactions in the digestive system that are not pleasant, right? And we're not going to talk about those unpleasantries. So you don't give a kid certain things because it's unpleasant. They can't digest it. And so Paul is saying, I, I, I have brought 
these blessings for you, this solid food, but you are unable to receive it. Why? Because your digestive system is still one of an infant, so I am forced to give you milk when I came to give you solid food. By now, you should be eating solid food, but instead, you're drinking milk. You should have progressed by now. Paul is saying, I've spent 18 months with you, and Apollos has spent almost that much time with you. You should be much more mature than that by now, but you're not. I'm still having to give you milk. Which I think is one of the main reasons why most pastors today find themselves sort of upset with, uh, with the prospect of giving solid food to infants who can't digest it. And so they compromise and continue to feed them with milk. Because that's what babies want. Milk. Why? Because they refuse to yield and submit to the word and to the spirit. He said, you are still of the flesh. You are still of the flesh. You should have progressed by now. And I'm concerned for you. You should have grown. You should have matured. You should have developed. You should be mature. You should be on solid food, but you're still crying like a baby for milk. You're still looking for the pacifier. And Apollos is still having to change your diapers. And I'm concerned for my church. I'm concerned for my people. And the reason he's concerned is because with that comes a series of consequences that results not only in the individual life, but also in the corporate life of the church. What are the consequences? He lays them out for us in verses 3, the second part of verse 3 through verse 6. Let's read them together. He says in the second part of verse 3, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, what are the consequences? He makes this incredible accusation. Now he provides the facts in his argument. I have accused you of being carnal, of being fleshly, of living worldly, of being infants in Christ. Now, here is in that, here is the proof in the pudding. The proof in the pudding is what's going on in the fellowship, in the lives of individuals, and in the corporate life of the church. First of all, notice in the first sentence that they were fighting like school children, fighting in a yard. Anybody ever been a part of that? Any teacher been a part of a, 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 a fight on the playground in the school among children? The, 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 they're fighting. It, it says here they're jealous. Jealousy is me wanting what you have and you wanting what I have and us wanting what they have. And it's not just merely about material things. It can be about spiritual things as well because we know in the church of Corinth, primarily they were arguing and fighting over spiritual gifts. So it's not only tangible, but it's the untangible, the spiritual, and the natural. They wanted what everyone else had. They were so envious and so jealous in, in each other that it was causing strife and friction. He says there was strife there. That means there were arguments and debates and contention and and, and nastiness and just things going abound in this church. That's the proof. You're like children in a schoolyard fighting with one another. He said you're acting fleshly. You're letting the flesh take control and yielding yes to the, less to the spirit. And the flesh is taking over. And you're acting like mere humans. You're acting in a human way. You're acting like unbelievers. You're acting like the world. Isn't it sad when I think sometimes the way we act and treat each other is really no different than the world? And that within the church, 
when people attend and people come, they say, you know what? Those people are no different than they are down where I work. Because we act just like the world. Not only were they fighting like children in a playground, but they were following men, not God. One says, well, I follow Paul. Another says, well, I follow Apollos. And not recorded here, but I think there's probably some, well, I follow Simon Peter. And somebody said, oh, yeah. Well, I w-, I, and there were some, I think, in this congregation who had been under the ministry, teaching ministry of Christ. And somebody, well, I follow Jesus. And there was a debate about who they followed. You see, that's what carnality does. That's what fleshliness does. It takes their eyes off of God and puts it on man and says, well, I, I follow this man or I follow that man or I like that guy on radio and I like this guy on TV and I like this guy's books and we follow men rather than God. But when Jesus called us as disciples, who are we to follow? Jesus said, follow me and I will make you what? When he called out the disciples from dropping their nets and following him, he says, follow me. We are not to follow any man. We are to follow God. We are to follow Christ. We are to keep in step with the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit that resides within our hearts. But these people were so carnal in their fellowship, they were choosing sides over who they were going to follow. This man, that man, or this teacher, that teacher. And they elevated these people to a place that was not rightfully theirs to claim. They were also forsaking the sovereignty of God. The third consequence, they were forsaking the sovereignty of God. Notice it says here that Paul says, We are simply servants with whom you believed as the Lord assigned each. Who assigned them to be servants? The Lord did. The Lord called Paul. The Lord appointed Apollos. The people didn't call Paul. The people didn't appoint Apollos. God assigned them their task. He assigned them their mission, their message, and he moved them to where he wanted them to be. That's why the Apostle Paul came there from the very beginning. It was because God led him to the people at Corinth, and he proclaimed the gospel, and they got saved. And these people, if you read throughout the first and the second book of, of, of Corinthians, you learned that they were people that were seizing what didn't belong to them. And, and they were people that were forgetting that, that, that God owned them. He owned their church and he earned, owned their spiritual giftedness. Carnal people don't look to God and say, God, what do you want? God, how are you leading? God, how are we not following? A carnal Christian doesn't come to God and say, God, what is your purpose for my life? How should I conduct my business? How should I spend my resources? How should I invest my time? Where should I serve? They just seize control and they take the steering wheel and they dictate and run their lives as they choose and then they blame God for the results. This church had forgotten that God was sovereign over their lives and over their fellowship and over the kingdom and the gospel of Christ, but they also failed to see to give God the glory. Notice that it says in the next verse, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the increase? Who gave the increase? Who gave the increase? God. Uh, Throughout the first letter, you see that they were taking credit for what God was doing. They were giving man the credit for what God had done. And that's one of the fallacies of carnality. Carnality and fleshliness always talks about what I'm doing, what I have done, and what I'm not doing, what I am, I, I'm wanting to do, rather than giving God the glory for what he has done. You can, you can develop all the disciplines you want, but you cannot grow yourself. 
A farmer can plant the seed and he could do everything that, that, is, that is required in order for the seed to germinate and to grow, but the farmer cannot make the harvest. Only God can. And yet these believers were forgetting the fact that they were where they are, were in Christ, not only saved, but had progressed at least to spiritual infancy because it was God who had brought them there and it was God who deserved the glory. The church at Corinth was doing some incredible things. But they were robbing God of the glory that was rightfully his. And I think that's what carnal people do. They take the credit and rob God of his glory. If you ever hear anybody say about me, me, I, I, us, us, or even Emmanuel, Emmanuel, they stop. (laughs) It's God. So we see the concern and we see what happens and the consequences of the failure to listen and to heed to this spiritual development. But we see now the correction. Isn't it great that once he he brings this accusation, then there's an argument. He then brings this process by which the church can correct their mistake. It's it's described for us in verse 7. He says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, but you are God's field and God's building. Now, what is the corrective course? First of all, you notice in the opening sentence, he says that we must reclaim our dependence on God. I must reclaim my dependence on God. He says here, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is what? Is what? Come on, church, is what? Anything. Without God, you are nothing. You have nothing, and you have no hope of anything. God is your sufficiency. He is your all within all, and without him, we have nothing. We have no hope. We have no future. We have nothing. We are totally and completely reliant and dependent upon him because carnal people don't rely on God. They do it themselves. Like my little granddaughter says, Doc, I do it myself. When you try it your way and get what you have done your way and you fall on your face and finally realize we did it our way, like the song says, I did it my way. We repent and then come back to God and say, God, I did it my way and it it messed up. Now I'm ready to do it your way. We're dependent upon you. They weren't dependent upon God. We're simply instruments and vessels and tools that God uses. That's all we are. So that's all we are. You're nothing more than that. Wasn't that a little bit deflating my ego? No. I'm not here to make you feel better about yourself. But understand and realize, I think sometimes we are not as important as we think we are. a, A tool can't do anything unless the master has the tool and accomplishes the task. The tool can't do anything by itself. I don't know any tools in my garage that fix stuff when it's broken by themselves. Anybody here got one of those? Because if you do, I want to see you after church. I want to borrow that tool. Number two, we need to rely on God's omnipotence. 
Once we recognize and realize our dependence, we need to rely upon God's omnipotence. Notice what he says, but only God who gives the growth. We are dependent not in and of ourselves, but we are dependent upon the omnipotent power, the sovereign will of God, and only his power to help accomplish anything in our lives and in our church. If his power is not an operation, human power is nothing. As you and I yield to the leadership of the Spirit of Christ, it is he that does it in us and through us. That's why he gets the glory. All we do is yield in obedience to the word and the leadership of the spirit. And as we do, he empowers us with supernatural power. Anything done in the natural does not last and it will not survive. Thirdly, we need to resist going it alone. Notice that he says in the text, he who plants and he who waters are what? One. I don't know where you fit in the body of Christ what your responsibility is, or what your giftedness is, but every part in the body is necessary so that the body can be one. And we are always one. And in the Midwest, we have a tendency to believe that we are sort of self-sufficient in that we don't need others, that we can be alone to accomplish the task. And what's required is a little bit of humility and recognition that I don't have all the gifts I don't have all the abilities, and I need others to come alongside of me to, to help me in what I lack and where I am weak so that together as we come together as one in Christ, one body, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, together we go as one unit, then God can do in us individually what he wants to do. You cannot grow yourself by yourself. You cannot Mature. A baby can't feed himself. A baby can't wipe himself. A baby can't protect himself. We need others to come alongside of us. And we do that as one unit, one body, under one Lord, under one baptism, under one message for one cause or one purpose. And then, number four, we need to reach for the finish line. Notice he says here, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Each one will receive wages according to his labor. We need to do everything we can to work hard enough in the labor that God has assigned to us until we reach the finish line. Now notice what it says. Where's the, where's the wage? Where's the reward? In what? What's the word? Labor. I don't know about you, but, but labor to me says hard work. Now what labor says to you, it means sweat. It means faithfulness when I don't feel like it. It means doing it when I don't want to do it. It means persevering when others quit. It means that I stay faithful to the calling. And if I stay faithful in my calling, God will reward me in my faithfulness and in my labor. That's all that God promises to reward you in, is in your labor. A lot of times we have a tendency to think, well, God's going to reward me if I'm successful. I, I don't see that in here. Let's define success. What is success? Success is doing what God has assigned and doing what God has appointed in the way that God wants you to do it. And if you've been faithful to that, that's success. Too many times the church and the people of God have measured success by numbers, whether it's attendance or budget or anything else. 
God doesn't reward any pastor on the size of his congregation. He's not going to give Billy Graham. I was in his deal the other day. I walked through several of the things on the wall. He's preached to tens of millions of people. And he's not going to say, Billy Graham, I'm going to reward you more than Charles because you preached to millions of people. Is that what he's going to say? No. What he's going to say, Billy Graham, have you been faithful to my assignment in fulfilling the labor that I've appointed you? Yes, sir, I have. Come on in. He doesn't measure the way that we measure. I had somebody recently who said, and I shouldn't say this, I'm going to say it anyway. A pastor told me about a guy who he had a conversation with. He said, I left your church. And the pastor said, why? So I didn't see anything happening. I said, really? He said, yeah, he told me he didn't see anything happening. So because nothing was happening, he left the church. You know, I wonder how blind sometimes carnal people are. To the activity of God. If we would but open our eyes in faith and hear the Spirit of God speak, we would see the work of God moving in individual lives, which eventually spills over into the church. But carnal people are constantly looking for this and wanting to invest nothing in the reality of that work themselves. They want to come and sit and be entertained and watch everybody else work while they just talk about it. But there's labor involved in going with God into the deep and faithfulness that's required. Faithfulness in being a good steward of what God has entrusted. For we all will be accountable one day as we stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives before Him. How did you labor? How did you labor? And then lastly, we need to remain confident in God and in God alone. Our confidence is not in and of ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. Well, where do you get that? Notice in the text it says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. He says, first of all, we are God's fellow workers. That's a divine blessing. To be called to be a servant, to be a worker. That is our privilege. That is our blessing. Uh, I saw a sign the other day and made me think about something that I always say. Leadership is not a right. Leadership is a privilege. Can I say that again? Leadership is not a right. Leadership is a privilege. We have too many pastors and too many people in leadership think that leadership is a right. It is not a right. It's an endowment. It's a trust. And those who are in leadership have been endowed and been trusted by God for those, that, that role of leadership. And it is a blessing that you and I have to be called by God to walk alongside with God and others to serve. It's a blessing to serve. Only those who are carnal don't see service as a blessing. Only when we're allowing the flesh to operate and we don't operate in the spirit that we see our labor as anything but a blessing. For how could Christians be martyred for Christ and fed to lions and sing praise to God while their limbs are being torn apart? How could they do that? Because the spirit is in control and the flesh is not. We should live such a life. Not only is there a divine blessing, but there's a divine belonging. He says here in this text that you are not only workers, but you are God's field. Whose field is it? Come on, whose field is it? Whose field is it? It's not mine. Well, I'm the pastor of the Manny Baptist Church. Is it yours? No. Whose is it? 
It's God's. We belong to God, and God belongs to us. There's not only divine blessing, but there's a divine belonging. And when he reaps us out of that field, that harvest field, and calls us unto himself for salvation, and places us in the field to work alongside others and to work with him, we are, we are so privileged to belong to the Father, and the Father belongs to us, and we belong to each other so that in that divine belonging, there's a divine building. And the building is what? The kingdom, it says. Notice he says, in God's field, God's building. What are we building? We're building up the kingdom of God. Where is that kingdom? Where is that kingdom? This church? Is this the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom? Where? Where is the kingdom? In the hearts and the lives of men and women and boys and girls who recognize their sin and repent of that sin and receive Christ as their Savior and commit to follow him and his leadership in their life. That's his kingdom. It's not contained by some edifice or some structure. It's within us. And Paul constantly talks about that. And all of his writings about the Spirit of God that, that resides within us and that we then become the home, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God and now we are his tabernacle. And our job and our responsibility is to take the gospel, the good news, and as we take the resources and the giftedness that he has given us and the graces that he's anointed us with to go out and to build his kingdom. And I'm afraid too many times we're about building our kingdom rather than his kingdom. So how do we fix all of this? And I know it's past 12, but let me give, give you four things and I want to encourage you to do as we close. How do we fix all this? Putting all of this together. Victory is found through the word recognition. Recognition. When I recognize that I'm not where I need to be. I need to recognize that I'm not where I need to be. Lord, I have stayed spiritual infant too long. I have settled in this place for far too long. I have not been willing to step out into the deeper waters and to go with you. I'm satisfied with what I know and where I am. And I know that there's more and there's more blessing. And I know you want to give it to me, but you're not because, man, I, I just want to stay right here. Well, you know what? You can stay there as long as you want. And God will pass you right by. Until we recognize that we're not where we need to be, and we're not where God wants us to be. Once we recognize that, the word remorse comes to mind, where we actually feel sorry and we are regretful for not moving with God. We have let other devices, other things rob us of the spiritual growth and development that we, that we and God, we are sorry for that. We have... We have stagnated and we've sat still too long, personally, individually, and corporately. Number three, repentance. Once remorse is set in and we're sorry, it requires repentance. Repentance means I, I'm doing this, I'm settled here, I repent from it, I turn away from it, and I take then the fourth and final deal is I step from my selfishness and my self-centeredness and my carnality and I step into the realm of being controlled by your word and led by your spirit I'm going to move 
where I am to where you want me to be. I wonder if that would be your desire today. How long have you sat where you're sitting? How long has it been since you've grown uncomfortable with where you are? And you've done anything about moving to where God wants you to be? Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Each Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 10 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship service and a casual and relaxed setting. Our second worship service begins at 11 a.m. and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for adults and children of all ages are offered at 9.45 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com. Lord, you're